If you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 8, um, we will read um, verses 27 through 30, um, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. This is the second week of our study uh, mini-series where we're walking through who is Jesus. Last week we saw he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This week we are saying and pointing out another confession of who Jesus is. He is the Christ. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Amen. Well, one of the things about my daughter, if you go to our local mall with her, one of the places she loves to go to is Bath and Body Works. And um, she owes that largely to Miss Julie Waters, um, who has... uh, uh, clued her into uh, how hand sanitizers can have great smells and all that stuff. So uh, recently I was at the mall. We went and watched a movie. Me and the kids did. Um, and then afterwards, the boys, of course, they like the, the video game card store right there. But then we, me and her went inside Bath and Body Works. And as you're with her, you'll walk around with her and she wants to sample all the scents and fragrances. She probably could spend an hour there. Uh, she loves it. Um, and you know, you women who go in there, um, you, you know there's hand sanitizers, there's lotions, there's sprays, everything. And all sorts of fragrances that you can uh, sample to your heart's delight. And perhaps, you know, my wife told me one, uh, here recently, she's like, in the future, there is a certain fragrance that I like, just so you know, in case you go back there, you know. And that was very helpful to know. I needed to know that. Um, and so... There's certain fragrances, right, that associate us with, uh, maybe it's food, right, and you think about your mom or your, uh, your dad's barbecuing, or maybe there's a, even a perfume or something that your mom used to wear, or you go into a house and you're like, this smells like my mom's house or, or something, right? There's, there's those kinds of things. Fragrances and scent is a, is a very powerful uh, thing in life. Well, what's interesting is When we talk about Jesus as the Christ, we're talking about Jesus as the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. It means he's been anointed. And in the Old Testament, you would have been anointed with oil. And one of the big instances we have described uh, about anointing is the anointing of Aaron as the high priest. And if you know the story, remember Aaron is the high priest and he wears a turban, special hat, He's got all of his special clothes on, and it's while he's wearing those special clothes that then a, a, a very unique ointment, an oil, that remember, you remember there was a certain recipe. It's kind of like the Coke recipe. No one knows it, right? Or you're not supposed to know it. Similarly, there was a special recipe for this oil, the anointing oil, because it was sacred and holy. And that was poured over the head of Aaron. And Psalm 133 kind of describes the oil running down the beard of Aaron and down on his robes. 
that scent would have stuck to the clothing. There's a sense in which um, if you didn't see Aaron, you might have smelt him first because the anointing had a fragrance about it. The oil was so powerful that it, it, it not only marked him with the liquid as being um, as a symbol of being the chosen designated high priest and later on with the kings, right? But the scent, the fragrance would have filled the area. Similarly, when we read about David in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, you remember um, Saul has been rejected as king and God is looking for a new king, a new anointed one, a new Christ, we might say. And God tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so he goes there, you'll remember, and uh, Samuel is waiting to see which one the Lord has chosen, has selected to pour the oil upon him. And all the older brothers, you know the story, are rejected. But then eventually he comes and sees the youngest one. Where he's described as this, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. His name David means beloved. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And that fragrance would have filled the room or wherever David was was anointed at, right, as the oil, probably the, 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 the aroma, the fragrance, the smell would have probably clung to his hair and his skin for days, right? And whatever clothing he was wearing, it would have, it would have attached itself. So you would have known that's the smell, the fragrance of the anointing oil upon the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen king. And so God had made a promise to his people in the Old Testament that he would provide them with an anointed, with a chosen one to ultimately save his people from their sins. And this promise was made to David because we are told in Psalm 89, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. God made a promise, a covenant to David saying, from you, I am going to, to bring about the capital C, Christ, the capital A, anointed one. The one upon whom I will pour not simply an oil, but my spirit. And he will be baptized. He will be anointed and have the oil run down him. And he will send forth the fragrance of being the Lord's anointed in a new and powerful way. So we have the promise of Christ who was promised to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. And for years, God's people, hundreds of years, waited for God to keep his promise to David. Where is the Lord's anointed? And it's in the Gospels that we see that God kept his promise in sending his son, Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, the anointed one. And here... Jesus asks Peter and his disciples in chapter 8 here. Um, you'll notice in verse 27, Jesus goes on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, a place that was associated with pagan, idolatrous worship. And he asks all of his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
That's the second most important question in the world. What is everybody else saying about who I am? And they throw out some options of what people are saying. You're Elijah, maybe one of the prophets, maybe John the Baptist. And then Jesus pushes it and presses them and says, but who do you, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter, speaking up on behalf of the rest, says, you and you alone are the Christ, the anointed one. Today I want to walk with you and think about uh, how did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ? And I want to use the imagery of this fragrance idea. What was the anointing that rested upon Jesus? What was the aroma that came from him? Because Jesus never came out and said before this, right, I'm the Christ. He didn't just come out and say that, did he? Rather, it was through faith as Peter watched and was around Jesus and was in his presence that Peter could put all the pieces together with the other disciples and being around the aroma and the fragrance of this man and the anointing that rested upon him, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, what is the fragrance of Christ? What is this smell of the anointing, so to speak, the oil that would have exuded from off of Jesus in his life? The first fragrance of Christ, the first component of it is authority from God. How often do we read in the gospels that the disciples and the, uh, the crowds say, no one talks like that guy. He speaks with authority. Uh, we're told in Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So it was God who anointed Jesus, right? The father anointed. So he has all of the authority from the father. And he exercised his authority. And Peter saw this as he, as he was with Jesus, saw him and followed him. First of all, uh, Peter saw that he has authority over you and me. He exercises this authority right away whenever he comes to Peter and he comes to you and me and says, follow me. That's a command, isn't it? You follow me. You don't have an option. If you disobey, you're disobeying a command from the Lord who has all authority. He's the one in charge. He's the one who, uh, where the buck stops, right? He's the big B boss. You follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Authority in Jesus. And we know what Peter did. Peter and his brother leave their nets and follow this man. Now, if you and me did that to Peter, they'd be like, who are you? Right? But when the Lord calls you, and he calls every single one of you today and says to every single one of you, follow me. You have no option in the matter. If you choose to reject him, you're rejecting the one who has the authority to command you. Secondly, he has authority over demons. Uh, Peter saw this as well. Uh, one time, uh, Jesus entered a synagogue in Mark chapter 1, and there was a demon, right? And he, the demon says, I know who you are. You're the son of God. You're the holy one of God. You're Jesus. And in doing this, this demon is in a sense challenging Jesus because the idea could have been that, that demons, if they know your name, the idea is, is, I know who you are. You can't pull the wool over my eyes. I know exactly who you are. And he's in a sense challenging Jesus. And Jesus, what does Jesus tell him? Be silent and come out of him. Authority over the forces of spiritual darkness. He then shows authority over judgment. Um, this is what really shocked people, right? We read about that earlier in Luke chapter 7. 
from the uh, Gospels with the sinful woman who came to Jesus and was weeping. But also we see this at the paralytic, right, who's brought to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and tells him, your sins are forgiven. And the great scandal is, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Uh, man can't forgive sins. And so Jesus here is assuming that he has the authority to decide your eternal fate. Later on in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you remember Jesus says, um, if you build your house upon my words, you will live forever. But if you don't, the house is going to collapse and you're going to be in destruction, right? Now, the amazing thing is what Jesus is saying, how you respond to me is going to determine your eternal fate. Now, for anybody else to say that, they're wacko. But for Jesus to say it, because he has authority, he is the Lord, the judge of all the earth. He has the authority to say this, your sins are forgiven. He has authority over eternity. And so Peter here, being with Jesus, is in a sense smelling this fragrance of authority exuding from Jesus putting all of these pieces together. And then eventually he even, while they're in the boat, you remember this in Mark chapter four, Jesus is there in the boat asleep with them in the storm. And uh, you remember the great concern is, right? The disciples are in a storm. They, they're on the lake. They, everything's going crazy. And they, Jesus is just over there taking a nap. And they say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus wakes up and says, peace, be still. And the disciples are shocked and they, they say, what kind of guy is this that the wind and the sea obey his words? The authority of Jesus, right? The fragrance of Christ, the thing that they, they could sense, the anointing of God's spirit upon him, first of all, was authority from God. The second fragrance of Christ was new life in the spirit. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, we're told, with the Holy Spirit. Now he was born of the Holy Spirit, right? But then especially on top of that, at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon him. That was Jesus's anointing moment, right? That was in a sense when God the Father took the oil of the horn that Samuel did and poured it on his son. And so Jesus would go to the synagogue eventually and, and read a passage that Pastor Tim opened the service with. In Luke chapter 4, we read, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, he has Christed me, to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is pretty astounding stuff. I mean, that's like one of those mic drop moments, right? It's like, you know, take the scroll, finished. I'm here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And what you notice in what the Spirit of the Lord does whenever the Lord anoints him with the Spirit of God is there is a new life 
that the Spirit of God infuses into all those who come into contact with Jesus. For instance, and Peter would have been with Jesus, right, and sensing this fragrance of Jesus again in his ministry, first of all, as the lepers were cleansed. Remember Jesus, right, the leper comes up to him and He's a pariah from society. He shouldn't be around Jesus. Jesus is the holy one. And here's an unclean, unholy individual. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. Touches him. And the amazing thing is, the contamination from the leper does not contaminate Jesus. But Jesus' holiness is, trans, is a, I don't know what word you want to say, imparted to this leper and he's cleansed. He's washed in a sense. The lame walk. Uh, again, the, the paralytic comes, right? And his legs don't work. He's paralyzed in some sense, in some way. And he tells the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice what the Lord does, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus is around, he restores what was lost. He gives life where there was death. And, and, and comes and heals us all. In Mark chapter 3, Peter was there whenever uh, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. Remember that. They were, they were trying, the Pharisees were there just keeping an eye on Jesus to test him to see if he would really do it. And he does. He says, he says stretch out your hand. And his hand's restored. The dead were also raised. Mark chapter 5, when Peter was there, uh, there was this little girl there, remember? And Jesus comes into her room takes her by the hand and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. The deaf hear, the mute speak in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus comes to the deaf and mute man and says, be opened. And then the blind see right before this story here in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, where Jesus laid his hands on the guy's eyes and he's healed. So you see here, the fragrance of the anointing of Jesus. Whenever Peter's around Jesus, he can, in a sense, smell the aroma of new life bursting forth from Jesus. And you know that too. That's why you're here today, I hope. Or maybe you're here for some reason you don't understand, but it's because there's life in him and there's death in you. And he's come by the Spirit's power, by the anointing that rests upon him to heal your heart, to forgive you of your sins, and to give you eternal life in his name. This is why whenever Jesus, you remember, is, is, uh, is ministering and John's disciples are sent to Jesus and, and uh, they ask a question. John wants to know, are you really the one who's to come or should we look for somebody else? Are you the Christ? Are you really the anointed one? Or should we look for somebody else? And what does Jesus tell him? Tell John the lame walk, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, Isaiah 61 is going just as it should have been going, right? New life is breaking forth. The third fragrance of Jesus that Peter was with is this leads up to his confession of Jesus. We've got authority, right, over all things. We have new life breaking forth through him in the power of the Spirit. The last fragrance here leading up to, to Peter's confession that Peter would have known and saw is compassion for sinners. Compassion for sinners. We read in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34, the apostles returned to Jesus 
and told them all that they had done and taught, right? The apostles have been off ministering. They're tired. They want a vacation, right? And so he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Let's take a break. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. We're going away. We're taking a sabbatical. We'll be back later. But what happens? Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And you could imagine the disciples in the boat, right? They're, they're almost ashore, and all of a sudden they look over there. They thought this place was going to be a nice private place for a little getaway for a break. And there's the crowd again. And you can imagine Peter and James and John saying, oh my word. Will they not give the anointed one a break? Will they not give us a break? We just want to eat a sandwich, sit on the beach for a little bit, and hang out. But what is Jesus' gut reaction to this? When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. The people that you and I would think are getting in his way, he looks at and has pity, internal movement of feeling of compassion for them all. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The Lord Jesus is not wearied with them. He gets wearied with unbelief, but he's not wearied with sinners. And he's not wearied with you and me. And he comes here again to show them compassion. This is interesting. B.B. Warfield, who's a an old writer, about 100 years ago now, he uh, has a, a well-known article uh, that talks about Jesus and his emotional life. And he points out that the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus in the Gospels is compassion or pity. B.B. Warfield writes, Jesus' prime characteristic was love, and love is the foundation of compassion. We read that he showed compassion and healed the sick when they were brought to him in Matthew 14. He showed compassion for the crowds when they were hungry and they don't have anything to eat. And you remember the disciples say, send these people away because um, they need to go get some food. And Jesus is like, uh, you guys feed them. And they're like, what are we going to feed them with, right? And you know the story. Jesus shows compassion by feeding them. He shows compassion to a father and later on in Mark chapter 9, whose son is convulsed by an evil spirit. He shows compassion to a widow in, Mark, in Luke 7, who's uh, weeping because her only son has just died. He shows compassion to sinners, and that's what that woman in Luke chapter 7 who came to Jesus, right? The one thing about Jesus that's fascinating is Pharisees stay far away from Jesus, but for sinners... Jesus is like, uh, you know, like flies being attracted to ointment. It's so sweet. When you see Jesus as sinners, you cannot be helped but, but be drawn to the fragrance of his compassion for us. So Peter has been with Jesus. And he's been around this fragrance that's exuding from Jesus' anointing. But he doesn't understand everything yet. He says, you are are the Christ. We've, we've seen your authority. We've seen the new life that breaks through from you. We've seen your compassion for sinners and for people. You are the Christ. 
That's all you can be. But he doesn't understand everything, right? Because right after this, what does Jesus say? Very good, Peter. Now let's do lesson number two. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He hadn't said this before, but he brought them to the point to where they were saying, you're the Christ. And he says, very good. Now, here's what the Christ has to do. What does Peter do? We're told about Jesus, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You're the Christ. You're the Lord's anointed. You're the king of the world. By the way, you shouldn't be saying that. Right? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter did not understand everything yet about Jesus' fragrance of being the Christ. He understood these things, the power, the authority, the new life breaking forth, even the compassion for sinners. But there was something that Jesus would, would go through in his betrayal, his arrest, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, that shocked the whole world. Because the fragrance of Christ also includes weakness. You see, whenever Jesus is arrested by uh, the authorities, he doesn't look like he has authority, does he? He looks pretty weak, right? The Christ is arrested and the Christ is beaten, and the Christ is the one. He's the one who should be judging the world, and yet here he is being judged by the world. Right? And so eventually, uh, he looks weak instead of authoritative. So whenever he's, being, whenever he's suffering, uh, they say to Jesus, they say, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Again, uh, he had exuded life all around him, gave new life raised the dead, did all these things. And yet here he is dying so that on the cross they would say to him, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Hmm. See why Paul would say, Christ crucified is foolishness. It's weakness. It looks ridiculous to the world. Lastly, he's hated and rejected instead of showing compassion because while he's on the cross, we look there and and as he's on the cross, they say, let the king, Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. He's hated, rejected, despised. But wasn't the Christ supposed to be welcomed? Wasn't the Christ supposed to be powerful and authoritative? Wasn't the Christ supposed to bring new life? And here he is in weakness, death, and rejection. The reality is, is that when Peter really understood who Jesus was, he, like all of us, did not respond the way he should have. There's various responses in the Gospels to Jesus whenever he really shows who he is as the Christ and this aroma of Jesus with his weakness and such. One response to this is betrayal. You see Jesus and you see the suffering, you see the cross, you see the weakness, you see the suffering and you decide, like Judas, you know what, I'm just going to turn him in for cash. I don't need him anymore. 
And he goes up and kisses him and says, Rabbi. Or, like all the apostles, we abandon Jesus at this moment. They all left and fled. Or we deny Jesus and disown him like Peter did. I do not know the man of whom you speak. Or we condemn Jesus. They all condemned him as deserving of death, we're told in Mark chapter 14. Or our response to Jesus as the Christ might be indifference. Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas. Right? Just trying to hand him over. Mocking or reviling or derision. All of those are responses to Jesus as the Christ. This brings up the reality that um, the greatest sin of all that you and I commit, the greatest sin of all is not breaking one of the Ten Commandments. The greatest sin of all is not trusting in Jesus. The greatest sin of all is not loving the gift that God has given us, the compassionate, the authoritative, the life-giving Christ. That is the biggest sin this world commits. And you and I commit. So we know Isaiah 53, we can see how it was fulfilled in our own lives. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we, you and me, and the whole world esteemed him not. This shows the depth of our sin, doesn't it? That when God comes to us and is reconciling the world to us, reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, we look at him and we shout crucify him. Right? You and I weren't there when they held the nails. We weren't there whenever they shouted this. We weren't there as one of the authorities. But you and I, you and I, our sin and the sin of the whole world nailed him there. And this is how we take, whenever love really comes into this world, whenever the anointed of God really shows up, you see, they all thought whenever the anointed of God showed up, they would all be ready to welcome him, right? Yes, right? We will never leave you, Jesus, because everything's going to be great and you're going to be exactly the way we think you should be. But then when he comes and lays down his life as an offering for their sakes, every single person rejects him abandons him, disowns him, denies him. But that's not the last fragrance of Christ. The last fragrance of Christ is one that happens ultimately um, on the cross, but also in the resurrection. The last fragrance of Christ is the forgiveness for sinners. And this is the, the key component that makes Jesus' fragrance, his anointing as the Christ, this most sweet-smelling aroma to us. We crucified him, God raised him, but he forgives us. So, when Peter, at the day of Pentecost, you remember, opened up preaching, um, he said this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Now stop real quick. Do you remember in the Old Testament, remember David, right? And with his relationship with Saul and how many people are saying, listen, you should kill Saul. What does David say? I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. It was a big deal to touch the Lord's Christ. A huge deal. And remember, whenever somebody came to him and claimed to have killed Saul, right? What did, what did David do? He had him executed. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. But here, not simply one or two men, but the whole nation and the Gentile authorities, Jews and Gentiles, have killed the Lord's anointed. And you could imagine, whenever they hear Peter preach that, their hearts sink. Because like you and me, we've put him on the cross, we've rejected him, we've denied him. And he says this, and this would have been the most scary thing of all at this moment, God raised him up, uh-oh, he's back from the dead now. And he's gonna, he's gonna take vengeance, right? Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the anointed one, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're scared to death, quaking in their boots. God's wrath is about ready to fall because they've all rejected the Lord's anointed. But what does Peter say? They say, brothers, what shall we do? They ask Peter, okay, so what are we going to do? Well, listen, uh, you might want to go find him and apologize to him and, and really hope that maybe you can get back into his good graces because maybe he'll spare you or maybe he'll make you a slave in his kingdom. Um, I don't know. Maybe go talk to him. Now, what does he say? Peter, the denier. What does Peter preach? Repent, change your mind, come back to God, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Lord's Christ, the aroma of Jesus, as he's beaten and bruised. It's kind of like one of those fine, uh, right, you get um, some of those herbs or, uh, I don't know, I'm not a cook. But you take them, right, and you grind them. And what happens, right? The odor comes out more and more, right? You take, if you go out to your garden and you get some basil or you go get some mint, right, whenever you rub it in your hands, by rubbing it and crushing it, you're able to smell the odor, aren't you? The aroma, the fragrance. And when Jesus was crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our sins, what pours forth is forgiveness. The odor, the aroma that comes forth is forgiveness compassion, atonement, justification, sanctification. And we can smell it and it fills our home. It fills our hearts. We crucified him, but God raised the Christ. And now we have the forgiveness of all of our sins to everyone who believes. There's a hymn John Newton wrote. I like it's not one of uh, his most famous hymns, but it's a really good one. And this is what happens when we come to the cross of the anointed one of Jesus. He says this, in evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight, and stopped my wild career. 
I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath shall I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. Right? You look at the cross, and whenever you and I come to the cross of the anointed one, it charges us with his death, even though he's not speaking a word. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayst live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. When we look at the cross of Christ, it does show us the depth of our sin because it shows what we do to the Lord's anointed. It shows what we do to love. When it comes into this world, we reject it because we are uh, sons of wrath, sons of disobedience. But it shows us what he does also in the cross. This is the mystery of grace. The same cross that shows the depth of our sin shows the depth of his love, the depth of his compassion, the depth of his commitment to us. That nothing, nothing at all will separate us from the love of God in Jesus the Christ, our Lord. And so, because he was anointed and he's the Christ, because of what he did on the cross, we can say with Psalm 23, verse 5, in a new way. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Amen. Let's close in prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us the Christ the anointed one. And I pray that his fragrance, the aroma of his anointing would be in our hearts and in our minds every day. That as we're with Jesus, we would, we would know him, we would rest upon him. And that also as he is in us, because the life that we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us because he is in us now that that same aroma, that same fragrance would be in us and through us to a lost world in desperate need of the compassion of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless your, heart, your word to our hearts. Help us to have ears to hear and to receive what you've given to us and to treasure it up in our heart because your great gifts are so wonderful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.